Hey everybody, Lee Jackson, America's Finest Watchman here with you today. Stop touching that watch. Shh, quiet you. My music won't stop. Stop touching that watch on your wrist. Playing with it too much? Stop. Okay, so um, let's have some fun. Frolic, we were talking about restoring watches how to buy them, what to look for. Let's keep talking about watches. Okay, the next one. Now, I may be redundant. If you listen to the lost episode, which I recently found, I thought it was lost for good. Um, it may have some redundancy of what I'm going to talk about today. And that's okay, because you can listen twice. I am so much fun. It's fun. I even like to listen to myself, but not in reality. Um, in the old days, when I used to do shows a lot, I was getting Nielsen ratings, not from people who were buying, but people just wanted to hear what the hell I was going to say next and do next. Because it was so crazy and entertaining that people would learn something. Like, I'll watch other shopping programs just to learn something, because I think it's interesting. It doesn't mean I'm going to buy, but I get uh, hung up in it. And I like it. What the hell? What the hell, you know? I like it. So let's talk about some other brands. Let's talk about long jeans. Long jeans means long meadows in, uh, I think, French. I'm not sure, but I know it means long meadows. And they've been around a long time. They were the direct competition for many, many, many years for Omega. The Omega was on a level with long jeans. They were both good. Long jeans was more into design. Omega was more into the movement and the functionality of the watch. They were very simple. They weren't uh, as beautiful as Longines watches, but they were really good runners. I used to tell people, if you're starting to collect watches, buy Omegas from the 50s and 60s. They're not expensive. They run, run, run forever, and they're really a good watch to start. And I had a lot of Omegas, and you evolve, as I've said. You get into better watches, but Omega was a good choice. Now it's not simply because the prices have gone up so much that, to me, it doesn't pay. It's not fun. It's not a good value like it used to be. Omega was a great value. You could buy an Omega with an automatic bumper movement or a Seamaster or whatever the hell they call them. Yeah, Seamaster. Um, for like, I don't know, three, 400 bucks in really clean, nice shape running with a guarantee. Now today, got to be at least double or triple that. So there are other brands that I probably would recommend, Launchings being one of them to look at if you're just starting out. Now, the problem with a lot of these watches, including long jeans, is the cases are plated and you don't want that. You do not want an electroplated or gold, <clears throat> gold filled is better, but any of that kind of stuff, you don't want it. The reason is the more you wear it, it's going to wear out at some point. And then what do you do? You have to have the case buffed down and replated and it only lasts a certain amount of time. I mean, who needs that? Plus, if it gets eaten up by your skin chemistry, it's not going to be easy to, um, buff it down and replate it. It'll look all lousy. I've plated watches that were, the cases were not perfect and they didn't look good. So if you want to stay away from that, if you're just in it for quick, you're going to wear it for a month or two and sell it or get rid of it. Yeah, it's fine. But if you're going to keep it, I say stay away from anything that is not solid, stainless steel, gold, platinum, uh, palladium. What's some other materials that they use? E even silver is better than gold plating, but I don't recommend silver watches because they tarnish really bad. So Longines made very good watches. Uh, they were highly, highly publicized. So everybody knew the name Longines. It's a good Swiss watch. Uh, 
Their chronographs were highly sought after, even in the old days. They didn't make that many. Uh, they had aviation pilot watches that I had. I had a beauty from the 30s or 40s. I mean, killer years ago. Really some killer stuff. Um, and then Omega's a great brand, too. I'm not going to say anything bad about Omega. I just don't think that they are where they have put themselves price-wise. They've tried to pull vault to the top by advertising like crazy. And guess who pays for all that? We do. So that one didn't uh, sit that well with me. When I found out that Omega had gone crazy, I was really shocked because Omega was like Toyota. You know, there's lots of them. They run and run and run. They were great watches. Uh, let's talk about Movado. There's another interesting company. It actually goes back to the 1800s. Um, it means in motion, Movado. It's a really good name, too. Isn't that a nice name, Movado? It kind of rolls off the tongue, Movado. And in 1948, they came out with their museum watch, which was a specially designed watch. And to this day, they're still making it very, very, very popular. Nathan Horwitz designed it. I think it was 1948. It has usually a black dial with a big gold dot at 12 o'clock. Very cool. Um, again, they're still making them. They haven't stopped. And they're a beautiful design. They're, in a, they're on permanent display at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The Movado. That's how cool it is. Um, if you're going to buy a fairly inexpensive or decent watch, it's not a bad watch to buy. In the old days, and I mean going back almost 100 years, Movado was a high-end watch. They were one of these companies that made the decision to go more mass market from what they were. Because I've had old Movados that were really nice. And I've had newer Movados where they try to regain that, um, the top spot where they came out with perpetual watches perpetual calendars, solid gold, big suckers. Because a perpetual calendar, I don't know if you know what it means, but it means that it's all mechanical. There's no quartz. Quartz is easy. Mechanical is much harder. They have a day, a date, a month, and a year. Uh, and they all change. So in other words, when you have a watch on your wrist that has a date, it doesn't know there's 28, 29, 30, or 31 days this month, and you got to change it, right? With a perpetual calendar, it does know. It will change after 28 days in Mar in February. It'll go to March 1st automatically. It also knows when there's a leap year, which is more amazing, that there's an extra day or a day lost or whatever it is. It knows the downside, and there's two of them to this kind of watch, and a lot of companies make them. They're very expensive perpetual calendars. The downside is you must keep it running all the time. You can't take it off your wrist and let it die, or you're going to have to reset the whole damn thing. And it's a big pain to set these things. They have to be set exactly right. They're not, there's no margin for error. So you got to keep them running. You got to put them on a, a watch winder or something if you're not going to wear it all the time. Uh, second thing is all of these functions are accomplished mechanically with gears. So these are complicated movements. I mean, really complicated. So when they need service, look out. You're talking big money and it's only certain people can even work on these dumb things. Uh, I had a watchmaker for 30 years. The guy was fantastic. He could fix anything. And he didn't like chronographs. We're not talking about perpetual calendars. A chronograph has a bunch of extra parts because of the stopwatch function built in that's mechanical. And he hated doing them because it was so much more work. It would take him much longer. I wouldn't even, I, I'd be afraid to ask him to do a perpetual calendar. Because if you ever look at the inside, there are a zillion gears and levers in there. Because remember, it's all mechanical. 
So Movado's a good company. Uh, I've had antiques that were fantastic Movados. I mean, from the 20s and 30s that were really high-end, nicely made watches. And I think their chronographs are still highly sought after. We're talking about mechanical. Most of the watches Movado makes these days are quartz. And quartz is a very simple concept. You can buy a quartz movement for a dollar. <clears throat> and yet you could get good quartz, <clears throat> excuse me, good quartz, <clears throat> good quartz movements that cost more than that. They cost a lot of money. You know, there were quartz and paddocks and Vacherons and all those that were made. Rolex made their own quartz movement, but they all keep pretty much the same time. The question in my mind is how long is it going to hold up? You buy one of these cheap movements, it's not going to hold up. Just like these new LED light bulbs. They're supposed to go forever and they go out. Why? Because the electronics in them goes out. It's not the LED. It's the electronics that's in there to control the LED. And there are a lot of these things are made in Asia and they're made like garbage and, you know, they go out. They flicker, they go out. Same thing with watch parts and quartz movements. You buy a cheap quartz movement. Yeah, it's going to run, but for how long? And what do you do when it needs a new movement? Is it worth it? Wouldn't you rather buy something that's going to last for a long, long time? You buy these mass market watches. I mean, I don't know if I ever said this, but I was the person, the first person to bring Invicta to TV. Me, yours truly. I brought Invictus. I was the first one to sell Invictus on TV. And I did really well, <clears throat> but I didn't sugarcoat what they were. They were a fairly inexpensive mass market watch that looked like an expensive watch. They weren't a clone, but they were, you know, similar in style. And they were okay. They, in those days, they had all Japanese Miyota movements, which is uh, Citizen, which is a good movement, but it's, you know, an inexpensive Japanese automatic movement. They were good. Their quartz were, I think, Japanese also, and they were good. Not great, but good. It was like buying a Citizen or a Seiko in a different skin, really. Um, today, they use a lot of ETA movements in their stuff, but as I said in the last episode, when you buy ETA movements from ETA, which, by the way, ETA is not selling them anymore. I should talk about that, too. But when you buy out of movements, they're unfinished. They're just like, I've seen them. Like I've seen value movements that were not finished well. They just bought them. It's like buying a blank and then you have to take that blank and carve it into something. That's what an unfinished movement's like. Yes, it'll run, but it just, it's not great. It doesn't run great. It doesn't last long because it's not finished properly. You're talking about tolerances and all these different factors that enter into a movement. And how good is it? And you can take an inexpensive movement, fairly inexpensive, and make it into a great movement by putting a lot of time and effort into it. I don't mean us. I mean the watch companies. We are not equipped to do that. So don't even think about doing it. Don't even think about trying it. But you can take uh, movements and stuff, I mean, and change them and put in different movements. Now, let's talk about Etta for another minute, since you got me on the subject. Uh, Etta is actually Eterna, believe it or not. Eterna makes a pretty good watch, but they're very unknown in the U.S. They're big in Europe. But they came out with the ball-bearing swinging rotor, and that is what everybody uses these days. Forget Etta. Everybody uses that same concept. But Etta has it too. So they brought out these movements, and they were told they had to make them available to the other watchmaking companies. I guess it was antitrust or something, and they had to make them available. Well, a year or two or three ago or more, they were told that's over. They don't have to do it anymore. So guess what? They're not putting their movements out to watchmakers and watch companies. So you can't just buy it. Kind of like Android comes from Google, you know, and they give it to everybody for free. It's kind of like that, but not anymore. I know they weren't free. 
So there's another company that took over. It's called Salida, and they're from Switzerland, and they copied Eta Movements, I'm told exactly. And they're actually pretty good quality. You can still get them, and they're, some of the parts are interchangeable with Eta. So a lot of companies are using Salida. There's also some Chinese Yak Movements. In the old days, we used to get watches that had Chinese movements, and they were total crap. And I can name you some of the brands out there that are still doing it. It's like throwing your money away because those movements do not hold up. They do not last. Chinese movements are absolute cock-a-doodle-doo. So the Salida movement is a good movement made in Switzerland. There's Chinese ones that are copied at all. So, so you really want to know what's in this watch. When you're paying all kinds of money for a watch, you don't want a movement that's going to go bad in a year or two or three. You want something that's going to last. Unless you're paying low money and you don't care. That's the whole thing. I mean, I bought a $50 watch that looks like a kind of like a Rolex Submariner, but a really pretty blue dial that I liked. Quartz. And I put it on a band and I wear that thing when I want to go to the beach or something. It looks like a nice watch, but I only paid 50 bucks for it. And it's not worth that much more, but I don't care. It's my banger. It looks like a nice watch. I put a Rolex presidential bracelet on it. Not a real one, of course, a knockoff. But it looks like a nice watch, but it's not. It's quartz. It'll probably last a long time. Who knows? But the case again, and I talked about this in the last episode, is plated brass. When I started buffing the uh, the bezel, which had a skin diver bezel on it, it started, the brass started coming through. I went, oh, what do I do now? So that's my little banger. If I'm going to work on something, I'm going to do something, go to the beach or whatever. I'll put that on. It looks like a nice watch. So yes, if you buy a watch that's inexpensive and you know it's not going to last, it's okay. But what really blows me away is like these Invictus now are going for big money. I mean, big money. Why would you put that kind of thousands into an Invicta when you could buy a pre-owned Vacheron, Jaeger, LeCoultre, IW for the same kind of money? You got to be mad. It's all marketing and merchandising. Their watches are cheap, period. The newer ones, maybe they're making them in Switzerland or whatever. And, you know, God bless them. They're doing that. But I'm telling you, I sold their stuff. We were selling them for $150 or less, Invictus. And that's pretty much what they're worth. If you buy a watch like an Invicta, you have to realize it is not going to last long term. It's a short term watch. I don't care what anybody says. First of all, it has gold on it. It's plated. That's going to wear off. And then what do you do? If you buy a stainless steel one and it's decent quality stainless steel and it's got a Swiss movement, you know, they use an ETA unfinished movement in there. At least you've got something. How long is it going to last? I don't know. But long term, you want to buy a better watch because it will last long term. I got to take a break here. I'm sorry, I overstayed my welcome. Boo-hoo, I'm sorry, I overstayed my welcome. Let's take a break and I'll be right back. Okay, so much for the break. So much for the break. Stop! Stop, you blasted music okay so that's uh my whole dissertation on inexpensive watches they're fun but you know what i know i have an inexpensive watch on my wrist if i wear that stuff and as you become a collector and as you evolve i cannot wear that stuff 
I just can't. I don't know what it is. As you evolve, you get away from that stuff. Okay, let's talk about one of the most interesting companies there is in watches, Patek Philippe. Two different people, Patek, who was Polish, and Philippe, who was probably French. Uh, it was Antoine Norbert de Patek and Jean-Adrien Philippe, and they started in 1839. And what's really interesting is it's one of the only high-end watch companies that's still in private hands. It's in the same family since 1932. They've been with the Stern family, and they are not a conglomerate like uh, Richemont Group or any of these other ones. They still make things the same way. They're handmade. Uh, they are arguably the finest watch in the world. They and Vacheron and Audemars, you can figure it yourself. I like Vacheron, but Patek is there right there. And Pateks do not go cheap. If you want a Patek Philippe, you're going to pay minimum $3,000 for a pre-owned, and that doesn't even mean it's in good shape. That's just the bottom. 3000 is what I see. Uh, new, they're very expensive. And if you take care of them, they will last forever. They have watches, millions of dollars with all kinds of complications. It's just amazing what they have. They're highly regarded. They're highly uh, actually overpriced, in my opinion, for what they are. And again, it's supply and demand. If you have a lot of watches, like Paddock didn't make, doesn't make that many watches, you're not going to see as many for sale on the pre-owned market, which means higher prices. And when you find something, you got to jump on it or it'll be gone. I mean, you don't see their stuff inexpensive at all. Paddock is like so great. And they make sport watches too. They have uh, the ladies is 24 uh, seven, I think it is. And the man's is the, the Nautilus. <coughs> and there's a few other ones they make really nice, really good quality. The thing about Paddock that I've always been not crazy about is their conservative designs. If you look at Paddocks, they're very conservative, their designs. And to me, it's a little too much conservative. Like if you look at their sport watches, their little ellipse, all that stuff. It's just a little too conservative. Now, if you want to wear a nice dress watch, Paddocks look great. But if you want something that's a little more exciting, uh, they're very conservative. They're very low-key looking. You're not going to find real expensive. I mean, yes, they have complicated watches you know, like world time and, and those sort of things that look really cool, that are very expensive. But on the on the main side, they're pretty conservative looking. Now let's talk about world time because that's one of the most expensive paddocks there is. And it's a interesting paddock they've been making for, I don't know, 60, 70 years. And it's a watch where you can look at the time where you are and then you can look at it in different parts of the world. There's a an inside bezel that in some cases turns and you can adjust it to show where you are and it'll show you what it is in other places in the world on the globe. And they have a big second hand, like a big round second hand. It's really an interesting looking watch and they're very cool. And they look pretty much the same as I have all through their history. And they go for 200, 300, $400,000. They're very expensive. And I'm talking about pre-owned. If you want to go buy new, get ready to really pay through the roof because paddocks, you got to go to a high-end jewelry store and pay through the nose. There's no discounts on Rolex and Patek. New, I'm talking about. There's no such thing. I mean, if, if you went in and said, I want a better deal, they're going to say this watch isn't for you. Go buy something less expensive. A Patek is a really fine watch. And again, it's owned by the Stern family since 1932, and they're still in the family. They have They made no attempt 
to sell it or anything else. Okay, so next let's talk about Omega. Omega was found in 1848. Now remember, the watch companies that started in the 1700s, those are the really high-end, usually, watch companies that are around. And a lot of times, their lineage is not the same as they were in the 1700s. In other words, the same people are not behind the helm, the same family, the same company. It's been sold and sold and sold. Uh, Vacheron is pretty much the same. They have been sold and sold. Paddock has not. Paddock was sold in 1932, and that's it. And they're the same. Uh, Omega started by a guy by the name of Louis Brandt in Beale, Switzerland, 1848. And the name Omega popped on a watch in 1894. They have all kinds of watches. They make all kinds of stuff. And I'm talking about going back to now. They made trench watches. They made some of the earliest wrist watches. Today, they're very sought after for athletes. They have the Man on the Moon watch which is a really interesting story. Um, that was the watch that was on one of the astronauts' wrists when they went and actually walked on the moon. I'm not sure if it was Neil Armstrong or not, but it was a chronograph called a Speedmaster, and it's manual wind. It's not automatic. And they took it up in space, and they actually used it on one of the space missions and saved their lives. They had to fire their retro rockets, and they used this watch to time it. It was right on the money. They would be dead. So it's got a very, very storied history. Now, the reason that they didn't have an automatic is because, think about it, when you're up in space, how's that weight going to swing inside the watch to wind it? There's no gravity. So that's not a great idea. So they used a manual wind. And after the moonwalk in 69, they started putting it on the back of the watches, the first man on the moon watch. And if you can find an Omega Speedmaster with that back, they're going, I'm told they're going for big money these days. In my day, it was not that expensive. Thousand, fifteen hundred. Now they're like ten thousand and up. They're really gone crazy. And one of the reasons all Omegas have gone so expensive is because they spent so much money on advertising. If you're as old as me or close to it, you remember the 80s, Concord was advertising like crazy. They were the hottest watch. They advertised and they became big, big, big. Today, where are they? Nowhere. They stopped advertising and they're dead in the water. Omega is the opposite. They were very quiet. They didn't do anything. And all of a sudden, in the 90s, they started advertising. Like the late 90s, they had tennis players. They had athletes. They had all kinds of people saying, I wear an Omega. And Omega did make a lot of chronographs, which again, not chronographs, excuse me, chronometers, which are the finest timekeepers in the world. Rolex and Omega made the bulk of chronometers that were running around. And not to leave out companies like Ulysses Nardin, they didn't make the quantity that Omega and Rolex made. Omega, there's a lot of them running around. Um, they have a lot of strange designs. If you get into the 70s, they have these really weird asymmetrical cases shaped like um, an eyeball one looks like, and they have ovals, some really weird looking stuff. It's cool. I mean, I used to wear it. Integrated bands that go right into the case. There's no pins. They go into the case, so you have to use their band, which gets expensive. That's another thing you got to watch out when you're buying a watch. Can you replace the band with an aftermarket leather or croc strap or something like that? And don't laugh. Some watches are designed where you have to use their band. And when you buy a watch band from the original watch company, you're going to pay hundreds of dollars for it. And they wear out every few months. You're going to pay lots of money. So that's another thing I look at. Can I replace the band reasonably? 
You can't replace a metal band <clears throat> with an aftermarket to look like hell. You can get another band or links from the original watch company, but you're going to pay through the nose for that. So you got to look and see, does this watch have a really strange band where I can't put a regular band on there? I have to order it from whatever company it is. That's big. I know it sounds really stupid, but that could be very expensive. And it can cause a problem where you don't want to wear the watch because you don't want to wear out the band. Um, Omega's had a watch called the Seamaster, which was their go-to everyday, really good, mechanical, water-resistant, automatic watch from the 50s. Uh, they have what, what's called a pie pan dial, which is kind of a dial that's not flat. It's kind of raised in the center, flat, and then the side looks kind of like a pie pan if you turn it upside down. Those are very popular, pie pan dials on Omegas. They also came out with a watch called the Constellation which was their top of the line. And it was a chronometer. It was a really good watch. They've redesigned them uh, in the 80s. They made them really cool with a bracelet and the whole thing. And that's the ones you see the tennis players wearing. They're still, still up, still going. They've tweaked it a little bit, just like Rolex has over the years. And they're very popular. Constellation is a very good watch. I used to get those for a hat full of hay. I'm telling you, they couldn't give them away. And now they're so hot because of the advertising. It is truly amazing. Omega has really taken off because of that. All right. So next up is one of my all-time favorite brands, Ulysses Nardin. And for those of you that go, went, what? What the hell is he talking about? What's a Ulysses Nardin? Ulysses Nardin started in the 1800s and they were ship's chronometers first. And what's a ship's chronometer? It's a big, big, like a watch um, that you use to navigate. They have to be precision or you cannot navigate. They came out, they started in 1846 by the watchmaker, Ulysses Nardin. Uh, in 1982, they were sold. And that's when they decided they were kind of floundering. They decided to go for the upscale market. So it's a really interesting company. First of all, they made a lot of chronographs and a lot of chronometers for ships, uh, for uh naval uses, airplanes, all kinds. They were really functional what they made. And they have an anchor as their uh, symbol, their logo. They were one of these companies that kind of lost their way. They were not a real high-end company. <clears throat> they were kind of more mm, like LaCoultra kind of in that range. Not Yeager, but LaCoultra. And then in the 80s, when they got sold, the guy that bought them decided, I'm going after the high-end market. And they started bringing out some of the most awesome designs, awesome everything I have ever seen. I love their stuff. One of my favorite watches of all time was a Ulysses Nardine I used to wear in the 90s. What a gorgeous watch. I used to say this was the most beautiful watch I'd ever seen. And this is really a beautiful watch, and they make really good quality, but their prices are pretty high. Now, if you want to collect... The interesting part about Ulysses Nardin is you can look back in the 50s and 60s and even into the early 70s and pick up Ulysses Nardin watches for a very inexpensively. Not bad. I mean, pretty cheap. But realize they didn't make their own movements back then. You're just buying pretty much the name. The watch is not that great. It's okay. I mean, it's a good watch, but it's not the quality of a Ulysses Nardin today. Today, they make watches that are absolutely mind-blowing. Um, in the 80s and 90s, they started bringing out watches 
that would track the planets and the sun and all these complications, Copernicus and all these really, really awesome watches, very expensive and mechanical, no quartz. So it's an interesting brand. I would tell you, if you've never heard of it, you need to look at it. You can still get great bargains on older Ulysses Nardin. The newer stuff goes for big money, though. There's one that I like called the Michelangelo. And I can't find it under 17, 18, 1900 for a stupid uh, rectangular. It's kind of a tonneau-shaped stainless steel. I, mean, I don't understand it. It's not worth that. But that's what they go for. That's what the market will bear. And because of the name, they're very popular. They're they're up there. They're with the big boys. They're probably up in the top 20 great watches. So that's one that I really like, Ulysses Nardin. I don't own one. Uh, a year ago, I was looking at some. I almost bought one. But I didn't because, again, I didn't like the price. Why am I going to spend that kind of money for a stainless steel watch? Is it worth it? To me, no. It's got an of movement in it. It's not that great. It's good. I like it very much, but it just, I just couldn't see spending that kind of money for that kind of watch. So you, that's the kind of thing you got to decide is where, what's your budget. Now, one of the things I like to do, and I got to get off, so I got to say this quick, is I like to amass a bunch of watches and then sell them and take whatever I get and buy something better. That to me is a blast to do that and keep a running tally. And that's exactly what I did with the Ulysses Nardin when I was looking. I had money to spend to buy a watch because I do it as a hobby. I don't do it to make money. I don't do it because it's an investment or any of that. I do it because I love it. And it's always fun to trade up. So maybe you want to think about that. All right, but I got to go. <laughs> I got to go. I've got a wet diaper. I got